Jude chapter, well, Jude verses 8 through 13, if you would stand with me as I read for you the text. And as I read for you this text, the verse that we'll be looking at specifically is verse 11, so you might make note of that as you hear verse 11 in its broader context. Jude, beginning in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I was asked by someone why it is that I'm taking these verses in Jude so thoroughly and slowly. I'm not sure why people have to ask that of me. But I thought maybe it's a fair question, and I answer it by reminding you that the problem and prevalence of false teaching has been and will continue to be pernicious and a serious matter for the church. While we do stand securely upon the promise of Jesus who made this statement to Peter and to the disciples that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the church, the gates of Hades is not taking that lying down. The gates of Hades, nonetheless, has sought to do everything in its power to hinder and to hamper and to harm the testimony of the church and of every single individual believer in Christ so as to dissuade others and to bring a taint upon the church. Therefore, every church age and every church member must be, as the scriptures remind us continually, sober. We're called to be on the alert for our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And listen to how Peter said in First Peter uh, chapter 5, he said, seeking someone, someone to devour. He doesn't have to take out an entire church body. He needs simply to find one to devour, one to bring into that fold a poison that will uh, permeate the rest of the church so that it minimizes the church's witness. Just one. And it made me think, like the disciples of Christ at the Last Supper, when Jesus told them that the one who would betray him would be one with whom he is actually dining with, with one, uh, one with whom he has dipped his bread into 
the sli- uh, uh, into the into the the wine, and he said, as he said that, the disciples asked a very self-reflective question. You remember what it was? They all asked this question: "Surely, not I, Lord." I wonder if we ever get brought to the place where we recognize that it could be if we were not careful, if we're not diligent, if we're not making certain of our calling and choosing by God as we're warned in the scriptures to do, if we're not careful to examine ourselves, to prove ourselves, to see that we're in the faith, would we not, would it not be prudent to ask ourselves the question, surely not I, Lord? In that moment, those disciples realized that they, apart from one thing and one thing only, would fall away from God. Do you know what it is? Living in the power of the grace of God. Because I can't do it, and you can't do it. They recognized how easy it would be for them to betray the Lord Jesus. We know that Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times, a believer, but yet he did have that moment of falling away, did he not? We know that there was one in their midst who was a devil from the beginning. And so if you are here this morning or you are listening this morning, the book of Jude reminds us, Yes, there are apostates. Yes, we need to identify them. But the very first question is to make sure you are right with God. That there not be found in any one of us a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so we take time to consider these attributes, these characteristics, these mannerisms, behaviors, the ways of apostates, those who have fallen away completely from the faith, who have rejected the teachings of Christ and go so far as verse 4 reminds us as denying Christ as our only master and Lord. Now thus far we've considered two of four categories of traits that are found among apostate teachers. In verses 8 through 9 you might recall that we saw that they operate by a different authority a different authority, rather than sola scriptura, rather than scripture alone. They go to some extra biblical means of trying to find an authority because if they can find an authority outside of the Bible, they can basically say anything they want. And so they go outside, they utilize dreams, they reject the authority of God's word and the apostles' teachings. They even revile, we read, the messengers of God In verse 10, we saw that apostates operate not only with that different authority, but a different attitude. That they're then rather than being governed by and led by the spirit of God, which always leads into truth. They rather are motivated by their own instinct. Those that have fallen away from the faith once for all handed down to the saints are motivated. uh, We read in verse 10 by instinct. They're like brute animals. They're not reasoning. They're just going through their their motions of what they think is best for them. Actually had an illustration of this. I'm sorry to bring it down to this level, but it worked for me. Some of you know I have a new rescue raccoon. We got him at three and a half months old instead of a little baby. He's scared to death of people. 
He is now come to coming to my hand every once in a while and smelling my hand for three seconds and running away in terror of his life because I would certainly hurt him, right? Well, this morning, um, I, I needed to feed him, and he's getting pretty good at recognizing the sound of me putting food into his bowl. And he knows that he can pop his head out of his little hammock and he can start eating. But today I had not only his food, but I had some treats. So I put the food in and I was grabbing another little bowl of treats to put in there for him. And he had already come out and he was not impressed that my hand was so close to him. And so he hissed at me and struck out at me. And I'm thinking of the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. We've all heard that before. I thought that meant don't bite the hand that feeds you. That's because he's an unreasoning animal. He's simply operating by instinct. He doesn't know any better except that he thinks that somehow I might take his food or squash him while he's eating. And, of course, he's safer in the little habitat that I've created for him than he would ever be if he were outside. In fact, he'd be dead, uh, but he doesn't know that. That's the attitude. People who don't know anything else but to strike out at God, to strike out at God's people, not realizing that the best thing for them is being handed to them, and yet they revile the things that they do not understand. Rather than motivated by the spirit, they are motivated by instinct. Let me remind you of some of the markers that we've already considered, any one of which, although we generally find them in combination, would help us identify apostates in the church. Number one, they're unbelieving. Uh, they may come across, they may profess some as semblance of belief, but they are ultimately unbelieving, they are rebellious, they are sexually perverted, they are dreamers, defilers of the flesh, rejectors of authority, revilers of angelic majesties. They're argumentative without understanding of spiritual things, instinctual, as we just said, rather than led by the spirit. Like unreasoning animals, they are simply unable to contemplate the things of God. That brings us to our third consideration this morning, what I would say is their different ambition. They have a different ambition. What is the ambition of an apostate? I would hope that as believers, we would say that our ambition is honest. We desire to know Jesus. We desire to have Jesus be praised in our lives by our lives. There should be within the believer a genuine, honest ambition of pursuit for the Lord. The apostates have a dishonest ambition. And Jude in verse 11, just one verse again, folks, but this one's packed, is it not? Uh, these Old Testament characters, he, he gives to us this dishonest ambition. He says in verse 11, listen again, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. I hope you recognize that name. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. You might recognize that name and perished in the rebellion of Korah. One of the key markers for those who have fully fallen away from the faith is seen in what they pursue, is seen in their ambition. And Jude 11, uh, Jude's drawing from three Old Testament characters, each of which did ungodly things for their own personal benefit. 
one of the things you will find with apostates is they're considering how to do things for their own personal benefit. What makes this so dangerous is that they try to mask it as though I'm helping you, but they're actually helping themselves. Each one of these characters provides believers insight as to how to identify uh, a true apostate, and each one of these puts on display ultimately what I would say is a different attack on the person and work of God. I will submit to you, and we'll flesh this out in a moment, that the picture that Cain gives to us is an attack on the salvation of God. How is a person saved? The picture of Balaam is an attack on the sovereignty of God. What is God intending to do for his people? And the picture of Korah is an attack on service to God. And by drawing on these ancient apostates' ambitions and attacks, Jude is reminding believers in every Christian era, even today now for us, that false teachers have been plaguing God's people since the beginning. Cain's kind of all the way back there. And by the way, uh, on Thursday night, we asked the question, I asked the question, who was the very first apostate? And it might surprise you if you had not thought about that question because it was Adam. Adam was the first apostate. He fell away from what he knew to be true. He disregarded it. And he has led now uh, within his, his uh, children this attitude of falling away from God. But Cain pictures for us this attack on the salvation of God. Now, before we consider those three, let's begin with this first subpoint: the curse for apostate ambition. If you choose to follow or fall away from God, what is the result? And before we consider this, then notice what Jude begins with. He begins with this, this cry. It is emphatic in the Greek. Woe to them. It's almost like you just have to stop for a moment. Woe to them. What? The word woe, as I said, is a cry. It is an expressive and emotional outburst that encapsulates the idea, if we were trying to expand what is the idea of woe, it's a curse that means, alas, how horrible it will be. To say woe is to call everybody's attention that something dreadful is about to happen. Woe is me, Isaiah said, for I'm a man of, of, uh, of unclean lips living among a people of unclean lips. He knows that something horrible should be happening to him. This pronouncement of the spiritual judgment that comes upon all those who will fall away from the truth, a curse that would befall Cain, a curse that would befall Balaam, a curse that would befall Korah, a curse that falls upon all who fall away from the living God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the author of Hebrews writes. Beloved, by God's design and providence, the book of Jude, if you didn't know this, and I'm sure you'll be glad that you came to hear this, is found just before the book of Revelation. How many of you knew that? Why is it there? Why did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, all written by John, get separated by this little book, Jude? Well, I would submit to you that one of the reasons why is found right here in this verse. 
Jude uses this word woe, and I believe it serves as a kind of preview, a warning of the judgment that is about to be unveiled in the very next book, the book of Revelation, the judgments that come. As the book of Revelation uses this word woe over and over again. Let me show you this just in a small form. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, we read of three woes. Note them there. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. He's in the midst of the judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now they're about to be, alas, and how horrible it will be. Three woes spoken of by the angel. And then as you begin to read through the rest of the book, in Revelation 9, the first of these horrifying woes is the form of demonic possession that comes upon the earth, a part of the judgment of the fifth trumpet. And in Revelation 9, 12, we read the first of those three woes. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. If we were living in the time when this is taking place, I don't know that that's much consolation. One woe has just passed. It's been pretty horrible. But guess what? That's just the first. Two more are coming. After this, in Revelation chapter 10 and 11, there's a global war of cataclysmic destruction and death that strikes the masses of the people. Surely, this would get, God, get uh, the people's attention, but it does not. John records that this worldwide war does not bring people anywhere near repentance. John goes on to describe the murder of God's two witnesses by the Antichrist, followed by the re their resurrection and ascension. That should get people's attention. It does not. And then speaks of a great earthquake that hits Jerusalem. This, it seems, produces a momentary prick of conscience among the Jerusalem Jews, but it quickly fades away. And after all these things, in Revelation 11, verse 14, we read, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The third and final woe is the worst of them all. And it speaks of Satan's fall from heaven and the subsequent working out of his wrath upon the inhabitants of the earth. And we read in Revelation 12, 12, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. You know the devil knows that he has a short time. You know something? We, we make a statement. We're, we're optimists, right? We're one day closer to heaven. Every day we wake up. That's just the truth. The devil wakes up, proverbially speaking, and he says, I have but a short time to wreak havoc because the Lord is coming. Now, why do I make mention of these woes in the book of Revelation? I mention these because they all stem from, you ready for this? The apostasy. The falling away from the faith. What Jude clearly foresaw and is now increasingly upon us in the present age. As orthodox historic Christianity is being increasingly abandoned. And all the moorings of moral and material blessings from God are fading. And in their place actions and activities that do not invite God's blessing. But rather invite his wrath are being pursued. I do believe 
that one of the very last moral and material blessings that God has left upon this earth is the church. We are the last stand. As we noted in our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, however, the Lord is ready to pull the church out. He will remove the church. And at that time, the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit, who resides in every believer, will step aside. And all divine restraints will vanish. And the earth will suffer the horrible woes, the curse. Alas, how horrible it will be that its own sin invites. Beloved, the world is blind that it owes its current existence and the, to the presence of the people of God. How can I say that? Because God's word tells us that. We read the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 13 and 14, that there are two things that, that Jesus said are true of his people. We are the salt of the earth, meaning we are that which is preserving the earth right now. We, you and I, as we walk with Jesus, are preservers of the earth. Not just proclaimers of the truth, but we are keeping, in a sense, the full wrath, the full curse of God from coming upon the earth. And he also said, not only are you the salt of the earth, the, pre the preservative power, that we are the light of the world, meaning we are the proclaimers of divine truth. We have a responsibility to tell people, be saved from this perverse and wicked generation. At the rapture of the church, all the restraints against evil will be gone. Then when the apostasy reaches its full climax, as we studied in 2 Thessalonians 2, under the man of lawlessness, then the great wrath of God upon the earth will be unleashed. At that time, it will be as if God speaks to the world. And he says, in effect, you have no desire for me. You have no desire for my word. You have no desire for the salvation that I brought to you through my son, Jesus Christ. You have no desire to be my people. You have no desire to live according to the power of my spirit. Therefore, seek to live without them and suffer the consequences of your actions. This is why Jude says of apostates, woe to them. They're cursed. Do not be near them. Do not delight in them. Do not wonder why they might seem so prosperous and, and, and try to emulate them. Seek to live apart from faith in the word of God and understand that the wrath of God is what's coming next for you. This is what the apostles' ambition earns them. Alas, and how horrible it will be. Now we look at Jude and he says, let me give you some examples of apostates from the Old Testament. And he chooses three. And the first demonstrates the apostates' attack on the salvation of God. We see in verse 11, for they have gone the way of Cain. Well, what is the way of Cain? With each of these illustrations, we need to remember that Jude would have expected his readers to be familiar with these accounts. They should have been able to say the way of Cain and go right back and understand what was taking place. And so I want to make sure that uh, we connect those dots this morning. Our first illustration takes us all the way to the beginning, the very beginning, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And it presents to us the person of Cain. 
Let me remind you something about Cain. We don't always think about it this way. Cain is distinguished among all the members of humanity. Do you know why? Because Cain was the first person ever to be born of natural childbirth on this earth. Adam and Eve were created and fashioned by God's own hand. Cain was the first baby brought into this world. From the Genesis account, we learn that, that Cain was a religious man. This does not mean he was right. There's plenty of religious people who are wrong, but he was a religious man for he re recognized at some level his need for God. He had to do something to appease God. However, he was not teachable, not willing to pursue being right with God, which is salvation. He did not want to pursue it on God's terms, but he sought to do it on his own. When you read through Genesis 4, you find that Cain was expected to bring a proper sacrifice, implying that God had previously told him what the sacrifice was to be. It would seem evident as you read the text that God had uh, required a blood sacrifice. But rather than obeying God, Cain invented his own form of worship. He began to pursue his own means of salvation. Well, what was that? Cain invented a system of religion that was based upon his own idea and furthered by his own efforts. He brought not a blood sacrifice, but of the first fruits as his offering. God rejected that. And when God rejected Cain's sacrifice, not because it wasn't good, not because it wasn't uh, maybe something that God could have delighted in, it was not what God had told him to do. Beloved, when you start making it up, when you start trying to do your own thing rather than follow what God has prescribed in his word, you've, you're falling away from God. When God rejected the sacrifice and called him on it, what should he have done? Repented. What did he do? He allowed his heart to be filled with anger and hatred. And it, it, it ended up unleashing itself upon his brother, Abel, who had offered what? A blood sacrifice. He murdered his brother in anger. And so Cain becomes a symbol of all false religion, all man-made pursuits of salvation. It is quite interesting to me that Cain was unwilling to slay a lamb as a sacrifice to God as prescribed, but he was quite willing to slay his own brother. Beloved, one of the key markers of all apostate re religion is spiritual distortion. Apostates will attack the essence of what is the salvation of God. It will seek to add something, seek to, to remove something. Such false teachings always deny what God's word speaks concerning the subject of salvation and will somehow express a disdain for the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And specifically, without the shedding of the blood of Christ, there is no eternal forgiveness. The way of Cain epitomizes the exaltation of man's reasoning and man's own good works as a means of salvation. It is the essence of liberalism in mainstream Christianity. It is the fundamental core of every cult. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses all propagate a works-based 
for salvation, cultivated not by what God has revealed in his word, but motivated by what they cultivated in their own minds. The Roman Catholic Church embodies this attack on the free grace of God that brings salvation by introducing the concept of human works and merit into the means of salvation. I've been told that a visit to Rome today would be as disheartening to a genuine believer as it was to Martin Luther in his own day. Today, you can still find pilgrims crawling up the Santa Scala, reciting their Hail Marys at every step, hoping to earn an indulgence and the cancellation of their own sins if they can just bloody their knees enough. One of the essential teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, beloved, is that the Pope has at his disposal a vast treasury of merit, the accumulated merit of, listen, the Virgin Mary and the saints, they've already diminished the work of Christ, that somehow you can take the the merits of Mary and the merits of the saints and add them to the work of Christ, that's apostasy. That has fallen away from the truth of God's word. They believe that that Uh, It is this vast treasury that the Pope is said to be able to grant what are called indulgences to those who are faithful, not faithful to Christ alone, but faithful to their works, faithful to giving to the church, faithful for doing all these extra biblical things. Such teachings led to extraordinary excesses during the Middle Ages, resulting in the marketing of indulgences not as a means to really help people spiritually because, well, it can't, couldn't. What was it meant to do? It was meant to prop up up the coffers of the church. Such excesses were one of the key motivations for the Protestant Reformation. And now Jude says that's the way of Cain. An attack on salvation, on how a person is saved. And what does Jude say of the way of Cain? Woe to them. Alas, and how horrible it will be. But next, we see not only this attack on the salvation that God brings, we see the apostate's attack on the sovereignty of God. We see, as we read on in verse 11, And for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. The verb have rushed in our text literally means to be poured out abundantly, to rush into tumultuously. It can mean to gush. It was used to speak of a river that was flooding and just overflowing its bank going everywhere. It speaks then of intense passion. It was used to speak of giving up yourself to something or someone else. And the word error in our text is from a verb meaning to wander or to be led astray from either the... the, uh, from teaching, specific teachings, or from morals. And the idea then is that apostates are those who are given over to a lust for money and are willing to do anything they can in order to get it, even if it means abandoning what they know to be right and true. Well, how does Jude illustrate this? He gives us the account of Balaam, a man who was without scruples and without a conscience. He was a man who was eager to sell his religious services for financial gain. I, I, I have to, to stop there for a moment. We're, we're getting fiber optic um, uh, cable or whatever put into the church so our internet speed will be faster. And uh, the guy that came on Friday, I, he was asking me if I was the pastor, and, and I said yes. And he said, this is the question he asked me. He said, uh, you make pretty good money doing that? <laughs> 
You know, how do you answer that question? Oh, yeah, that's what I'm here for, to make money. And, I, and uh, I, uh, I chuckled a little bit, and I said, well, I'm not really here for the money, but God has taken care of me abundantly well. But this was a man who was selling his religious services, Balaam, for personal gain. He wanted more. He prostituted the service of God for material gain. The account of Balaam, if you're not familiar with it, is found in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. And let me give you some background on Balaam. We don't have time to read, of course, all of the account. Balaam was from Mesopotamia, which is the same region from which Abraham would migrate to the promised land years before. Essentially, Balaam was a fortune teller. What we might refer to today as a psychic, or he had, he had earned this reputation with regard to his trade to be able to kind of foretell things. The king of Moab, a man by the name of Balak, had heard about him, and at the same time, the children of Israel, who had been wandering in the desert, had now reached his borders. So there, there's two or the three million uh, Israelites at your border. The king, uh, Balak, had heard of all that God had done. He's a little concerned of what could happen to his kingdom. He hears about this man named Balaam, who is able to do some extraordinary things, and so Again, Balak, having heard of the God of Israel, being terrified, although he need not be terrified if he had just simply allowed them through, Balak turns to sorcery and offered a financial reward to Balaam if he would come to Moab and curse the people of Israel. He wanted Balaam to say to Israel, woe to them. If you read the account, you find that Balaam attempted to do this four times. Four times he tried to pronounce a curse on Israel. Each time, to Balaam's consternation and to King Balak's growing anger, God changed the curse into a blessing because God's sovereignty said, my people will be in the land and no one's going to stop them. Balaam could see with this, these attempts and his failing that uh, his wages might be taking wing. And so he was fearful not only of losing the money, but the king could also do what? Kill him. It was at this time that Balaam made a suggestion, a rather infamous suggestion to the king of Moab. And what was that suggestion? Let me summarize it to you this way. If King Balak could not curse Israel, he could corrupt Israel. A lot easier to actually corrupt Israel than to curse them. He proposed a plan to present temple harlots to the sons of Israel, knowing that they would become ensnared and that their God would judge them if they became entangled in their immorality. Balaam knew that the Lord was a jealous God, and he sought to use what he knew against them. In the course of time, Balaam's plan was incredibly successful. Israel fell before their temptation, and they were punished by God. Balaam did collect his wages, and he sticks around for a time, it seems, to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Consider that Balaam had known God. He had known the authoritative, inerrant, inspired, and revealed word of God concerning Israel's call to be holy and Israel's call to morality. He had turned traitor to what he had known 
and he used his knowledge in, uh, as a means of making money. And while successful in the short run, he paid the price in the end not long after when he died under Joshua's avenging sword. Balaam is held up throughout the New Testament as a type of apostate. All of Balaam's actions serve as an attack on the sovereignty of God, what God intended to do for his people Israel. God's ultimate intention was not to curse Israel, but to bless them. And to be sure that blessing would come largely to a remnant, but it would be a blessing nonetheless brought about by the sovereign purpose and plan of God. Balaam thought he could upset the plan. Beloved, modern-day apostates seek to skirt to circumvent, to deny the sovereignty of God, his revealed plan and purpose for his people, and even on this earth. They come up with all sorts of ways to speak of other things other than what God has said that would come to pass. Beloved, Balaam's character illustrates at least two things. One is that he illustrates a covetous, greedy man who is willing to sin in order to gain money. May that not be found in us. A second thing Balaam illustrates is an evil man, one whose sin was the greatest sin of all, the sin of teaching other people how to sin. Be careful, beloved, that when you entertain sinning, you don't inadvertently drag others into your sin because God disdains that. Jude is warning his readers that wicked apostates in the church age are ready, like Balaam, to deny the sovereignty of God and leave the known way of righteousness, all in order to take gain for themselves and to lead others into sin. The apostasy of Balaam and those who follow his example is the failure to recognize that nothing is materially beneficial if it's morally bad. If you have to do something bad in order to make something, make some gain in this world, you are wrong. You have fallen away. Jude declares, what of such people? Woe to them. Alas, and how horrible it will be. Next, we see the apostles attack on God's servants, on God's servants. We see at the end there, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. We find the account of Korah in number 16. If you don't know anything about Korah, he's actually the cousin of Moses. He's a Levite. He's part of the tribe that God himself had set apart to actually serve the spiritual needs of the people of Israel. Jude identifies Korah's sin as that of rebellion. And the word rebellion here in the Greek is a word that you might kind of recognize. It's anti-logia, anti-logic, anti-speaking. It literally means against, anti and logia means to speak or to describe. It literally means to speak against or to contradict. Their word was used to describe vigorous opposition, generally opposition not only in word but followed with action. So it's like uh, an argument that comes to blows. This same word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to what, how the author of Hebrews uses it. For consider Jesus. Don't you love that? Just consider, consider him. Consider Jesus. You could stop right there. You don't have to read anything else, and you can just start considering him. But he says, consider Jesus, who has endured such antilogia, such hostility, such contradiction, such strife. And who brings us strife? 
by sinners against himself. How did the argument and the contradiction by sinners end? Did it end just with words? No, it end, ended with actions, with blows to the, the wrist and to the feet. It ended with Jesus being hung on the cross. And he says, the author of Hebrews, consider the strife and the contradiction by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You think you have people speaking ill of you? You think that you have such hostility? Yes, you will endure it in this world, but never think it amounts to the, that which your Lord and Savior has gone through for you. you. If Jesus endured it for you, by his grace, you can endure whatever may come. The word antilogia speaks of, again, that strife and contention and disputing verbal battle that's backed by deeds. In Hebrews 6.16, we read it this way. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute, every antilogia, every contradiction. Beloved, when Israel was wandering in the desert in need of water, they came to a place called, well, became called Meribah, as they did not believe in the promise of God. And what did they do? They contended with God. They contradicted God. They disputed with God. Meribah is translated contention in Numbers 20 and 27, and it became synonymous with strife, contention, and dissension. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the five verses where that word Meribah is found, it uses this Greek word, antilogia, the one that's found now by, in our Jude text as Korah's rebellion. Notice in our text that it's not simply Korah's rebellion. It is the rebellion. Do you see that? It is the Rebellion, a definite article, a very specific event. And we read of this event in Numbers chapter 16, verse 3, of Korah's contention of his dispute with Moses and Aaron. There we read this. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you, Moses, and you, Aaron, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Korah, motivated by his own pride, contradicted the idea that Israel needed a leader and a mediator, someone who would speak to them the word of God and teach them in the way of truth. How do we know this is what God intended? Because God said from the beginning of this whole Exodus experience, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, we find that it was God's design. And I find it interesting as I read this account, it's real tiny for you, Listen, that even Moses is having a hard time with this, right? Listen, then, the, the, then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He's like saying, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can do this. They're going to listen to me and think I'm some dork, and you know, how is that going to work out? And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go and I, even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Man, if God said that 
to me, that's, you would think that should be enough. I'm going to be with you. Any word you say, I'm going to put it right there in your mouth. Kind of reminds me that Jesus later, many years later, would say, I do not speak anything except that which the Lord has given me to speak. Here God's saying, I will give you, Moses, the words to speak. Verse 13, but Moses said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Anybody but me. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, is there not... Uh, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he, Aaron, shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take your hand you, uh, you shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. Interestingly, there seems to be some antilogia going on from Moses in this passage. But here Lord, the Lord establishes, doesn't he? He says, Moses, you're going to speak and the people are list, going to listen. And it sometimes it, later on we see Moses doesn't use Aaron. That much. He comes to understand this. But this is what God had established. This is what Korah in number 16 is saying. Who made you the authority over us? And Moses should have just said God. But what is Korah doing? He is rebelling. He is contradicting. He is disputing the established roles of service among the Levites. Thus, Korah openly rebelled against the authority granted Moses by God, even rallying others to support his spiritual mutiny. And it's interesting, unlike the two previous examples of Cain and Balaam, Jude's ticked off at this one because he actually includes the punishment, right? Uh, what, what is the punishment? Uh, he's been saying woe to them. But now this is given to the description that he they that Korah perished. He literally was that word perish means fully destroyed. Now, some of you know the account. It's found in number 16, verses 32 through 35. In a most abrupt and decisive fashion, all of the rebellious apostates perished. Listen. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. How would you like to be there? and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they, uh, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The Lord, or the earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering the incense. <laughs> this is one of those you want to ask for the DVD when you're there. I don't know if you want to watch it. Th as dramatic as this curse of God was upon Korah and his two companions, Dathan and Abram, and the 250 men, the lesson was not learned. 
as many more Israelites who were sympathetic to Korah right after this. Korah gets swallowed up. Fire consumes 250 men. And then the people grumble against Moses once and Aaron once again. So then God brings a plague that causes 14,700 more Israelites to die. Jude says they perished in the rebellion of Korah. It pictures, beloved, for us Korah's widespread influence. This, how his false teaching had infiltrated and poisoned many in Israel. Jude uses this example to point out how modern-day apostates openly defy not only God's established authority, which is the word of God, but also deny God's servants and his order of service within the community of God. They do not place themselves under the authority of of elders and pastors. What does Jude say of such men as this? He says, woe to them. Alas, how horrible it will be. Beloved, all three of these examples, we find Jude denouncing the apostates, identifying them all as unbelieving false teachers. Look at verse 11 again, though, and note the skill with which Jude is weaving this argument. There's a progression in view, and I want you to note this. He speaks first of the way of Cain, the way of Cain, which by itself is neutral. It's, you could be on a way, that's, that's fine, but what way? He moves to error, that is, the wrong way, and he finally ends with the rebellion, the contradiction. So make sure you're on the right way, lest it leads you to error and brings you to ultimate rebellion. You see that progression there. Then consider the verbs that are used. First there is, have gone, have gone the way, perhaps generally neutral at first. It's okay to go somewhere, to go a certain direction, but it's followed with have rushed headlong, implying passion and commitment to something that's wrong, and it all ends with the verb what? Perished. So the progression is there. This is what happens as you get onto the road to apostasy. You have gone, you move to rushing headlong, and then you perish. The picture painted by Jude are three persons who have hurled themselves at increasing velocity at falling away and further from the faith. Beloved, error and apostasy are never static. You don't stay in just one semblance of error. If you find yourself in error today and you do not correct it, you will be in more error tomorrow and more error the day after that. Error and apostasy are ready to shove a person over the precipice to their own destruction. Each one of these examples reveals an aspect of unbelief. In Cain, we find an example of religious unbelief as he pictures the arrogance and malice and false piety of the apostles. In Balaam, we find the example of a covetous unbelief as he pictures greediness and subversiveness and seductive characteristics. And in Korah, we find the example of rebellious unbelief or excuse me, rebellious unbelief as he pictures divisiveness and sedition against God's authority. Many of us are familiar with the words of 2 Corinthians 13.5. I appealed to it a moment ago. There we find the Apostle Paul addressing a church, so not unlike ourselves. He is addressing a congregation largely made up of believers, but he also knows that there's unbelievers in that group. And this is what he says to that church. He says, test 
yourselves. The word test means to scrutinize, to painstakingly consider. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The, saint, the, the faith, meaning the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. He says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. The word examine means to prove or discern for yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Do you know that Jesus is in you? Because if you do not have Jesus in you, you already are on the road to apostasy. You are on the way. The error will come. And you will perish. Be certain of God's own calling and choosing of you. Have you trusted in the work and person of Christ and Christ alone? Not Christ in your goodness, not Christ in your church attendance. For some of you, that alone would disqualify you. Not Christ in your giving, not Christ in your work ethic, not Christ in what you do for your family. Either Jesus paid it all securing eternal salvation for you if you believe he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again, or you would have to conclude erroneously that Jesus paid some, and you've got to help Jesus out. The scripture doesn't teach the latter. And if you believe that you have to add something to the work of salvation, you can never have security. You can never know if you're saved. Because you will never know if you've done enough. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. To live any other way is not living at all. It is to be in a constant state of dread and fear. Let me close by reading one very profound verse. It's one of my favorite verses. I wrote profound verse because I always say this is one of my favorite verses. So I'm just gonna, it's a profound verse. I'm going to read it to you from the Amplified Bible because I believe it drives home the point well that the author intended. He writes this, Therefore, Jesus is able also to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity, those who come to God through him, since he is always living to make petition to God and intercede with him and intercede intervene for them beloved have you come to jesus have you truly come to jesus do you long to know the faith the content of truth that he gave to his people by which they might know him and love him and serve him apostates can sit in a room like this and say to themselves i really don't care what the preacher is saying i I know something about Jesus, but I don't need to know any more about Jesus. Such people cannot love Jesus. They cannot know Jesus. And they cannot serve Jesus. They will only serve themselves. Do not strive for the ambition of the apostates. Rather, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 9, let us make this our ambition. Paul writes, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord, to be pleasing to him. Lord, make us pleasing to you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the, the dramatic way in which Jude has presented to us the way of the apostate. 
It begins simply on being an, on another path than what you have prescribed. It leads to increased error and leads to eternal damnation to be perishing. Father God, I pray for any soul, anyone who this morning has not yet sought the only way, the only truth, and the only life, which is found in Jesus Christ. May you open their heart to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior this day. Father, I pray for those of us who do know you, who do love you, and who do desire to serve you. May, may you remove from us, may we, our prayer be that of, of David, see if there be any wicked, hurtful, harmful way in us that would cause us to fall away from you or to lead others away from you and lead us, as David says, in the everlasting way. Father God, may we be truly yours. May we come to you and delight in you. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.